0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Well, you may take a seat, and if you would, please uh, open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, you 'll still find that, I think, on page one thousand and fourteen we haven 't moved much, have we <laughs> in the <clears throat> well, I hope you 're feeling okay, uh, and there 's a whole lot going around these days I, I myself uh, was knocked down most of the week with a head cold and uh, but i 'm feeling much better today uh, yesterday, uh, towards the end of the week, and it 's really hard to concentrate when your head gets all. Like that, so I thought I'd end my week after preparing the sermon by seeing, "What did Charles Spurgeon have to say on this verse, you know? So I open up and I find his sermon on this passage, and oddly enough, it begins by saying, "I had a head cold this week," says Spurgeon. <laughs> and I said, "He's no, no use to me. I know that. You can't help me this week." <laughs> so uh, you know, last, last week, we saw that uh, brotherly love. Love for brothers and sisters in the Lord is a sign of true conversion, the fruit of genuine faith. But it's not always easy to love our brothers and sisters. We said it's not like switching on a, a switch or something so simple as that. But the grace and strength to love one another uh, comes from, we found last week, what, uh, maintaining an appetite, a longing, a craving for The pure milk of the word. And what Peter does is he goes on, as we alluded last week to this fact, to say that coming to the word, longing for the word that we might grow, also involves coming to him because he is the living word, drawing close to the person. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. I'll read all the way through verse 10, but we won't make it that far this morning. Let's stand, if you would, one last time, if you can, and you're able to hear the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Speaking to these beleaguered Christians, he says, As you come to him but now you have received mercy. Again, this is the word of our Lord. Let's pray one last time. Thank you God in heaven for mercy, for the gift of your son, the cornerstone of the church, of our salvation. And we ask dear your God that in that ongoing mercy of yours, you would extend to each of us, Lord, illumination, understanding, tender hearts that are receptive, and that you would grant us, Lord, uh, the encouragement that we need to persevere in our day and age, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. Well, in our verses this morning, verses 4 through 10 that I just read, uh, Peter brings his description of who his readers are in Christ To a glorious climax Uh, he is speaking of what he is speaking of their new identity as Christians Uh, their identity in Christ through their union with Christ by faith Uh, and their identity in Christ is tremendously important because it is the foundation of their hope and hope in turn sustains them in their sufferings that was that was in large measure what he was communicating communicating in chapter one Uh, and this is still his logic here in chapter two it's it's peter's logic it is biblical logic it is the logic of the gospel and it goes like this know your identity christian that is know what you are in christ and what you mean to God, and this engenders hope in your heart, and hope has a sustaining power. Hope sustains you. It propels you forward as you experience opposition and hostility and perhaps even persecution for your faith like they were experiencing. And that's why when he turned the corner in chapter 1 at verse 13, he said, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, though uh, perhaps they were feeling weak and insignificant in the eyes of the world and the, the eyes of that great Roman Empire, as perhaps maybe even some of you feel at times, or maybe even feel today. Uh, Peter, Peter wants his readers, and he wants you. He wants all believers, you, to remember to whom you belong and remember how God regards you, how God views you. And so to this end, he introduces two new images uh, that further define A believer's identity in Christ. He says. Believers are members. Of a spiritual house. Built upon Christ. And we are members. Of a holy priesthood. A spiritual house. And a holy priesthood. And these are. Wonderful images. These are wonderful. Titles that speak of spiritual realities. That. If understood, they should bring you great encouragement, uh, great hope. Uh, But they are, I must point out, they are primarily in the context corporate images. You are members of a spiritual house. You are members of a holy priesthood. And though we apply it personally, he is now at this point not thinking about believers in isolation from one another, but believers together as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. And that is what he introduces here then in regards to their identity in Christ. And we've repeatedly emphasized the importance of identity because that's a major topic today, is it not? Because how you answer the question, who are you, immediately leads to the next question, well, then what are you here for, then? If this is who you are, then what, what are you here for? And that, of course, touches every aspect of your life, every sphere of, of your life, everything that you do. Who are you, you see? Are you an evolutionary Biological accident? Is that it? The product of mere chance? Is this life all there is? Well then, what are you here for? Or is there much more, and are you much more than just an accident? So Christian identity, how you answer that question, becomes very foundational and to how you live your life how you view your life and we've mentioned that it's not defined by what you are in and of yourselves the good and the bad nor by what you choose to now identify yourself as the way the culture constantly beats into our thinking but Christian identity uh, is defined by what God has done, is doing, and will do in you and for you. That's the essence of of who you are. What God has done, is doing, and will do for you in Christ Jesus. Individually, but also corporately. Because God does some of his greatest works together when we're with one another and so this passage tells us that he is building us up into a spiritual house and that's the only image i want to look at this morning i i gave you more in your outline but that's as far as we're going to go uh, he is building us up into a spiritual house the main Statement, the main affirmation, the main verb is found right there in verse 5. You yourselves, what's he say? Are being built up. You are being built up as a spiritual house. And the emphasis in in Peter's writing is on what God is doing. Uh, Paul tends to emphasize that we build each other up, and that's true, but here Peter is saying, you are being built up. God is the builder here, and the house that God is building is, he says, spiritual, a spiritual house. Well, of course, he's not building a literal physical house. The house that God builds is spiritual because it's empowered, it's animated by the Holy Spirit who dwells in each individual believer and dwells in the church corporately. I think what Peter's doing here is he's identifying the church. And remember, the church, it's not a place, it's not a building, it's you. He's identifying the church as the new temple of God. He doesn't use the word temple here, but he says you're a spiritual house. And the term house is used frequently in the Old Testament to speak of the temple. i place placed some verses there for you from Second Samuel and so forth. And the term house is also used uh, to speak of the temple in the New Testament as well. You have some of those verses there I mentioned for you. What temple am I talking about? I'm talking about the temple, uh, the Jewish temple, where Jewish worship took place uh, under the old covenant in Israel, which was, we believe, still standing at this moment when Peter wrote these things. And so he's defining uh, the church, the people of God, under Jesus as the new temple. And what, what was the temple, the physical temple to the people of god uh, to israel well the temple was the place where god manifest his presence it was the place where god manifested his glory it was the place where people came to draw near to god to to worship god to be received by god through the atonement and what Peter is saying is that what Paul has said and what Jesus himself said is that this, this, physical, this physical building of, known as the temple of God constructed in the times of the Old Testament, that physical temple pointed forward. It pointed forward and it anticipated or it prefigured the, the new temple of God. The place where God now dwells the place where God now manifests his presence through the Holy Spirit and that is the church the people of God where do we draw near to God now we don't draw near to him in some mountaintop some place a specific building one place in Palestine no we are the temple of God the church is the dwelling place of God he says to Paul says to the church at Corinth to remind them of the the importance of who they were in 1st Corinthians chapter 3 16 he says do you not know that you you collectively plural are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you that's what Peter's doing he's he's associating he's redefining the, the church as the new temple of God uh, Paul goes on in the letter to the Ephesians in a similar manner in Ephesians chapter 2 he's writing to Gentile Christians people who were not Jews who had no part in Jewish worship they never went to the the temple and went as far as uh, the Jews could come and and he says to them in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 2 you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God there's one image built on the foundation of the Apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone there's the same imagery in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit, he says, by the presence of God's Spirit. So Peter is identifying the church, the new covenant people of God, as the, the new temple. And he says we're being just as Paul said, we are being built. And what's that imply? It implies that there's a process that's still going on. You are being built. We're not complete. There's no Christian individually or, or no local church corporately will be complete in this age, right? Every Christian you see, including yourself, uh, has a sign I want you to imagine over him, him or her's head and it says under construction so when you run into a Christian and they frustrate you and we do frustrate each other don't we when you're on your way here you're into somebody or someone lets you down just picture this sign over their head that says under construction <laughs> not yet God has begun a great work but he, we are not yet finished this calls for what it calls for patience and forbearance and the love that he's talking about with one another and what are we being built upon if we are the spiritual house if we are the new temple of god what are we erected upon well uh, he says and he uses these three uh, images that are very important about christ he says that christ is a stone he says that christ is a living stone and he says that christ is the corner stone all three of those words are important he calls Christ the living stone he calls Jesus living a living foundation stone why living because as he's already alluded to because Christ is living what's Peter referring to what he's saying is that unlike other founders of religions or what have you who uh, Maybe they are memorialized in certain ways. Jesus is living. Christ, who is the foundation of of the church, is, is living now. He is referring to the fact that Peter saw Jesus of Nazareth after he had been resurrected from the dead. And this totally transformed Peter. It would change you too if you knew or you saw that this man had been crucified at the hands of Romans and he had been buried and he was surely dead, you see. And then to see him, to speak with him uh, afterwards, after the resurrection, that would have an impact on you. And that's what, that's what powerfully changed Peter. It transformed him and the disciples forever. Ask yourself, what is it that, that, that changed this man Peter, took this man Peter... Who on the night that Jesus was arrested ran away? Who on the night when Jesus was arrested denied he even knew Jesus three times? Who took this man? What happened to this man that he, he changed from that to 40 days later standing up and preaching salvation in the name of Jesus Christ alone and facing persecution and being willing to die? You see, what, 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 changed, what changed is that uh, Jesus was alive. And, and, and Peter knew it, you see. And so he says he's a living stone. And so he says we, like living stones, are being built upon Christ who is the living stone. And we are living stones because we derive our spiritual life from him. That spiritual uh, energy that Christ possesses as the resurrected Savior is, is put, placed in you, Christian. You have spiritual life because you are connected to the living spiritual life giver. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, chapter 5, verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ he connected you to Christ that's what happened to you when you were born again what happened why what changed in you what transformed you what what changed you uh, like what changed peter uh, what it was is that you were u- united to Christ by faith in a mystical spiritual way you can't see but that spiritual life entered you now and it comes from the holy spirit and so he is a living stone but he uses the word stone that's very interesting as well you know there's two terms for that could be translated stone i mean a rock and that is uh, lithos and petros or petra you know that simon barjona was named petros right peter and so here is peter and he decides to not use the same word for Christ, but he uses the word lithos. So why is that? Because Petros referred to loose rock uh, that had not been shaped in any way. I guess we'd say Peter had a loose mouth. He was a loose rock. He says, but I'll tell you what, Jesus is the lithos, you see. uh, Lithos was rock that had been chosen, chiseled, prepared, formed, and shaped rightly, correctly for its placement in a building, you see. And so what Peter is saying there." And it's really interesting again knowing what his name means he's saying Jesus is the only true rock stone that has been fit to be the foundation of salvation the foundation the cornerstone of salvation the cornerstone of the church the new people of God only he is fit to be Messiah and Christ and Savior and how so because because of his unique nature which is what made what he did so important first uh, timothy 2 5 paul says there is one god and one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus that's the one you see there's one god and one mediator between god and man And um, what is a mediator a mediator was refers to someone who was a go-between, someone who, who would seek to bring two parties that were separated together, that would seek to reconcile two parties. The mediator could touch both of them, reach both of them. And the only mediator that can bring God and man together is the unique one who shares both their natures, you see. In him, and Christ, the fullness of deity dwells, In bodily form, right, says Paul. He is both God and man. And so he is the unique one who can, as God, as God, he possesses a life that is of infinite value and preciousness. But as man, he is absolutely fit to be your substitute as a human being. Because he was tested, like you are, as a human being, but he did not sin. And he paid the price uh, for your sin as a human being and endured it. And he was raised as the first fruits of the new humanity. And so he is the stone, the perfectly fit living stone to be the foundation of our salvation but though he is god's perfectly fit messiah messianic stone if we put it that way he was rejected by his own people verse 4 as you come to him a living stone but he's also rejected by men rejected by his own people is what he's referring to um uh, he is quoting uh, Psalm 118 below. He, su- he supports that in verse 7. He says, The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. From Psalm 118, verse 22, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he intermingles their passage from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And so he supports the fact that Christ was God's salvation salvation stone the the foundation stone of salvation but he was rejected by his own people the builders and that this was the lord's experience it's affirmed throughout the gospels and the new testament right Uh, john the apostle says about jesus he says that he was the word that became flesh god and man and he came to his own his own people but his own people did not receive him They did not welcome him. And Jesus, one day, speaking to the Pharisees, the uh, religious leaders and the Sadducees, he told them the parable of, a, uh, uh, of someone who had a vineyard and, and sent uh, went away and put someone in charge and it represented them, the, the leaders of Israel, and he kept sending one messenger after another, meaning one prophet after another, finally said, uh, they keep killing my messengers, I'll sell my son, surely they won't kill him. And Jesus says, they killed him. <laughs> And then they got upset when he said that because he said he will turn over the care of that vineyard to someone else who is a stranger. And they said, surely not, because they understood what he was talking about. And then he quoted Psalm 118. He says, haven't you guys heard? (laughs) Haven't you heard Psalm 118, the stone builders rejected? You are the builders, and you rejected me, and I have become the cornerstone. And so Jesus applied this to himself, and and this would become a centerpiece of Peter's preaching in the book of Acts as the, as the church began. In Acts 4.11, uh, a man had been healed in the name of Jesus, and there was a big uproar, and Peter began to preach. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, as he was standing there, <clears throat> he says, I'll begin at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's saying Jesus is the reason this man is is healed. And then he says this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one God, says Paul, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? God only has one son, and he is the one he sent to be, the mediator. But he was rejected by the builders But in the sight of God, he says there again, Peter, he is chosen and precious. Verse 4, chosen and precious. He's speaking here primarily now about whose identity? Christ's identity, the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He says that he is chosen. Uh, Again, he is speaking of the fact that this is a part of an eternal plan of God. He is speaking of the eternality of the Son of God who entered the human race and became Jesus of Nazareth. If you look back and remember verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He is speaking there of the eternal Son. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So when he says that you reject him, he comes to you with miracles. He comes to you in the name of the Lord. He preaches good news. He raises people from the dead. He heals people. He fulfills the prophets. But you reject him, you see. But in the sight of God, he is the chosen one. He is the one whom God foreordained to come into this world. We emphasize that this time of the year, don't we? That's what do we sing at Christmas time? It's one of the oddest things to hear when you're standing in Starbucks and you hear the words "veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." You know, and you look around; it's like they're clueless. Nobody see "veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." That's what. Peter's saying, he's the chosen one who came. God sent him to be manifest for us, to become that cornerstone. And he is precious. That word means honored. In fact, it's the same word translated honor in verse 7. It means to be something of, that is highly valued, uh, something of great worth. And of course, the son of God would be of great worth intrinsically. He is the son of God. But the emphasis here is not on his intrinsic value, but on the Father's evaluation of him. He said, in God's sight, in the Father's sight, he is precious. He is uh, of great honor. He is of great worth. And so we, we can imagine this was affirmed to Peter when two times a voice was heard. Coming from where? Where? Somewhere, twice a voice was heard uh, regarding Jesus saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You know, people still reject Jesus, um, they reject his name, they mock him. He's a swear word. It's odd that there, there are no other um, religious founders or leaders whose names are swear words throughout the history of mankind, but there is one, and that is the name of Jesus. People still reject him and mock him, but God's opinion is what matters. And in the Father's sight, the eternal Son who became flesh, he is the chosen one, the only name under heaven by which we may be reconciled. The only mediator between God and man. And he is to be honored. He is precious. He is of great value. Let the world think what it thinks. Let the world say what it says. And it's going to come out. It's Christmas time. It's going to be all over the place. All those news magazines, nowadays blogs will have their who was Jesus really kind of articles. But don't you, don't you, lose sight of who he truly is. God in the flesh, chosen and honored. And it's important because there is application that Peter's making here that we must not miss. I mean, my focus is truly on the identity of Christ, but notice what he's saying. He's saying that your identity is rooted in his identity, and so your experiences will follow his, you see? He was chosen. Was he called you and me? Well, verse 9, you are a chosen race. He was rejected. What has happening to these readers and you and me? We're rejected. He suffered. What about you and me? Verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. But in the eyes of God... He's also what? Precious or honored. And what about you and me? Well, verse 7, the honor is for you. (laughs) You who believe, you see. And so our identity is not only rooted in Christ, but our experiences as a result of our identity will mirror those of Christ. And so that's why it's important to reflect on that and so christ is the living stone of the spiritual house but he's also referred to as the corner stone in verses 6 and 7 for it stands in scripture in other words he supports it from scripture he's quoting isaiah 28 loosely he says behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame he's taking that from isaiah 28 and and the context of isaiah is a message a message of judgment against one of the twelve tribes of Israel, Ephraim, for their disobedience and their unbelief. That's what Isaiah is discussing there. But he says that those who trust in the Lord and not in foreign alliances or in military power, for those who 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 trust not in those things but trust in God, they will escape judgment. If you want to escape judgment, Isaiah the prophet is saying, then. I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, he will not be put to shame. And so uh, Peter appropriates that from Isaiah. And he says, just like Isaiah was saying, uh, he's telling them, place your confidence, place your confidence all your weight upon him. Build your life upon Christ, the cornerstone, and there will be no shame. Meaning what? Not shame in this life. Surely there may be. You'll be insulted in this life. But when the truth is made clear, in the end, in the end, why? Because you are more than a cosmic accident. And there is an end. And all the history's moving towards it. And when it does come to an end and Christ is revealed and God makes himself manifest. And human history comes to an abrupt halt. There'll be no shame for you on that day. Because you built your life upon him. The stone that was laid down by God. The cornerstone. Right? Make him the cornerstone of your life you know in the construction of the day the cornerstone would be the first stone to be put in place and it would define the rest of the building and that cornerstone yeah, and it's something like a temple or one of the big buildings that construction they would have had, it would had to have been massive, it had to be firm, it had to be absolutely level and exactly positioned because it would determine all the angles of the building that would then go up the walls and so it it was a defining stone, as some have put it, a defining stone, and it had to be a strong stone and without weakness or imperfection, so that when the weight came upon it it wouldn't crumble because if the cornerstone crumbled, then then the whole building, the walls, would eventually crumble down. So both Peter and Paul, Paul in Romans 9.33, they see this, this statement of Isaiah the prophet as prophetically fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They say he is the spiritual cornerstone upon whom the temple of God will be built, the spiritual temple, upon whose life your life should be built all the weight all the weight of salvation all the weight of what it means to be reconciled to God and to be forgiven for your sins all that weight will not rest upon you upon your merits on how good you live but all the weight of salvation will rest upon him the cornerstone because of his unique person, right? His unique nature, the God-man. And how so? Because of his work, the unique work of the, of the God-man, which was what? To take your sins upon himself, to take the wrath of God that you deserve upon himself, to face judgment on your behalf as your substitute, and then to be raised from the dead. It's, that makes him the cornerstone of our salvation. And that's when that stone was laid. You say, when was that stone laid for the spiritual house? It was laid some 2,000 years ago outside of the city center of Jerusalem at a mount called Calgary, Calvary where, where the Son of God was crucified. And where three days later There was an empty tomb. That's when the cornerstone was put in place, you see. The foundation for your salvation. So how is it that we're built upon him? Well, that's where it all began. Verse 4. As you come to him. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you, you yourselves, corporately together, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house as you come to him that's how it starts you see as you come to him or coming to him uh, we are built up uh, the hymn look down at verse four the hymn corresponds to the lord in verse three if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good as you come to him, the Lord, you are being built up as a spiritual house. I mentioned last week that the, verse 3, if indeed you tasted that the Lord is good, is a quotation from or uh, allusion to Psalm 34, verse 8. If you've tasted the Lord, and the Lord there in, Psalm, in the Psalm 34 is Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator God. And so here he's associating Jesus with Yahweh. He's saying, as you come to the living God through Jesus, who is God in the flesh, you are being built up into a spiritual house. You know, verse 3, if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good by faith, you've seen that God is true, He's real, and He is good through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That verse uh, motivates verse 2 and verse 4. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, because you come by faith to him through his word, through the gospel, well then, like newborn infants, keep longing for that pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up. And if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, again, through faith in Christ as the living word, then as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. So if you've tasted that God is good through faith in Christ, if you've come to genuine faith and you have that appetite for Him, then you are being built up. Coming to the Word is to come to the Lord. And it's here essential that we remember that growth comes, growth in the Christian life and in the church is the result of of our continual coming to Christ a person not just a set of doctrines not a doctrinal statements hidden somewhere in a drawer in my office (laughs) but we are coming to him a living person we are coming to him this is not speaking of the first time when we are born again this is our continual walk together as Christians we come to him in our community groups we come to him in prayer we come to him together in corporate worship we hear the word peace we we, we raise up our praises and in, in exaltation we keep coming to him together even as you come to him alone uh, individually but his focus here is is corporate as we keep coming to him him, to a person, as we see him, as we hear him, as we understand him, it's then that corporately together we are being built up as that spiritual house, that temple in which God dwells. I don't think I need to even say the the obvious, which is if you don't come to him, you aren't being built up. There's only so far you can go cooking your own meals. The Spirit dwells in the church. He dwells through each of you and moves through each of you. And as we come to Him and see Him for who He is, He keeps building us up into that spiritual house. It's just no accident it's no accident it's the plan of God no accident that and no surprise to me when people uh, go somewhere I mean whatever it is that takes them somewhere wherever it is you may go or you may have gone if you do not find a good church and do not continue to come to him not just to some at, at organizational meeting not just to some event but you are coming to him because he is being put forth him a person Christ the king Christ Messiah Christ the Savior Christ the the Eternal One, if you are not coming to Him, being fed Him, and not just little Bible facts, it is no surprise to me when I hear two years later that that person's life fell to pieces. Why? Because you are not coming to Him. And He is the fountainhead of your spiritual life. You are not met to be a Lone Ranger. That is not in the plan of God. And so where we cherish Christ, we enjoy the vigor, the life of Christ. And we enjoy that and receive it together. Do we not? So wherever life takes you, keep coming to Him. Whatever you do, Whatever your circumstances bring you, wherever your own decisions take you, keep coming to him. Now Peter ends by saying, you know, however it is that you respond to him, there are divine consequences. Christ is the dividing line of humanity. He is the cornerstone that God has laid for salvation. For those who believe, verse the end of verse 6 whoever believes in him and that's an ongoing tense uh, whoever is a believing one whoever continually believes in him will not be put to shame that is on that day and there is honor honor for you who believe again he's talking about that last day look back at chapter 1 verse 7 Chapter 1, verse 7. Remember when he said there, the tested genuineness of your faith. Your faith is tried. Are you a real Christian? God puts the heat on. And what is the result? That you find that you're, it's more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. That faith may be found to result in praise and glory and, there it is, and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, for you who believe in him, Whatever the world thinks, there's going to be great honor. You are chosen and precious in the sight of God. But for those who reject, those who disbelieve, he, he goes on to say, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the very most important stone that there is for eternity is the one you've rejected, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For those who reject Christ, there are very different consequences. The one who could have been the very foundation cornerstone of your spiritual life and your acceptance before God, you will now stumble over him, and that is, and you will fall. The image here is that, of judgment and why is that because verse the end of verse 8 they stumble because they disobey the word we said what was that last week we says the word is the gospel and the gospel calls for what faith but you have disobeyed that call. You've, you've turned it down. You have disobeyed the word. He's not talking about any one sin you committed in your life. He's saying you have rejected the, the only Savior. So you, you did not res, respond to the call. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But you didn't obey that word. You said I'll build my life on something else, you see. And someone asked, does this frustrate the plans of God? they just people who reject the very cornerstone. The Son of God comes into the world and people reject Him. Is that frustrate His plans? Does that ruin God's plans? Absolutely not. It's part of God's plan. They stumble because they disobey the Word, end of verse 8, as they were destined to do. <laughs> That's hard to hear, isn't it? Nothing frustrates God's plans, you see. Not at all. It says he has become the cornerstone. And it's been said by someone you either are trusting in him or you're tripping over him. But all of it is part of God's plans. You don't unmake him the cornerstone, he is the cornerstone. And so your response to him, whether believing or rejecting, will determine your relationship to God and will determine your destiny. You say, but it says there as they were destined to do. What does he mean when he says that? He means that the rejection of Christ, the cornerstone, also fulfills God's purposes. And this does not mean that there's a group of people who really truly wanted to go to heaven but they're in hell but you see they weren't destined no they didn't want heaven and it doesn't mean that there's a group of people who are judged by God in hell uh, because they were made robots no the the Bible says uh, there's no robots all human beings are accountable you say well how can both be true well that's that's God's problem not yours But he says this is something we need to understand and accept. The Bible never exempts people from personal responsibility or accountability before God. And the Bible clearly affirms the fact that God is totally in control of all things, divine sovereignty. Peter's point really is mainly this here. All human decisions fulfill the plan of God. all human decisions fulfill the plan of God both belief and unbelief I know it's hard to get your head around that especially it becomes emotional when there's people in our lives that we love that to this point have not believed but let scripture be your guide Uh, there is always hope we don't know the plan of God and we aren't supposed to try and mess with it or think we could somehow change the plan of God here's what's clear about the plan of God if you come to him do you want to, you see? Oh, don't think about, did God make me? Does God want me to? No, no, no. Just put it all in your hands. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Well, what about you? Now, there's no book you've got to find if your name's anywhere or this or that. No, no, no. Come to me, he says. Will you? At the end of the day, if you say no... That's on you. You have just disobeyed the word. I'm just a messenger. He is the the cornerstone of salvation. Build your life upon him. All that you need to be reconciled to God, he has finished. Humble yourself before God. Admit you're more than an accident, that you are a beautiful creation Designed by God for fellowship with him. But what keeps you from him is your sinful pride and your sins. But he's dealt with that. He sent his son. So come to him, you see. And whatever the world says about you, Christians, whoever you come to him, remember that in God's eyes, he is chosen and precious. And because you are united to him, so are you. You know what bullies do? They beat shame into people at school, you know, little 10-year-old bullies. I remember them. I hated bullies. Bullies just keep beating down your children in public or at school, right? And when they come home, to mom and dad, what they need, you know what they need? They need to know that in God's sight or in your sight, They are precious. So whom are you going to believe? That's in your hands, brother and sister. Whom are you going to believe? Let's let's pray. Another way we come to him is through the Lord's table. And we're going to come to him now and be built up through that. Let me pray. Lord, we lay at your feet.